chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. It's provided for you in the bulletin as is a sermon outline that I think will help you as we move through the message. Acts 17, 1 through 9. Now when they had traveled through Amphibolus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. We are starting a new series for this semester out of Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. I love this little book. It's probably one of the earliest ones Paul wrote. Why are we going to study it? Let me give you three reasons briefly. Number one, if you ever wondered what it looked like on earth when the grace of God, when the heavenly reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, the King of glory, when he is making his invisible glory and reign manifest on the earth, when grace advances on this earth, what does it look like? This epistle, in a sense, really answers that question. And we want to know. We want the grace of God advancing into us, into our families, into our home groups, into our neighborhoods. We want to know what it looks like. This epistle really answers that question in some specific and marvelous ways. Second reason, this is one of the churches Paul planted. He was a church planter. I like Paul because I'm a church planter, at least I was a church planter way back when. And I don't know if you know Wallace's history well enough, but there was a time decades ago that Wallace was a very large congregation, kind of a regional church, people coming from all over, about a thousand strong. And a decision was made by the leadership to begin to spin off daughter congregations in the greater suburban uh, Maryland area and now we have planted at least four different daughter churches out of Wallace, the mother church. We're the mother church. 
So there's a sense in which we're replicating what the, Paul, what the Apostle Paul did. The third reason I think we want to study this book is, although there were some issues in the church, there's much to envy. Two things this church in Thessalonica did really, really well. Personal evangelism and love. And we want that for Wallace. We want to excel in those two graces. So you're saying, well, Mike, why aren't we in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? Because, as it's obvious from this text, Acts 17 records the planting of the church in Thessalonica, and it gives us something of a feel for what happens when the grace of God is advancing. So let's look at this text, and it sets us up then to begin to get into the book next week. And we want to ask this question, as Paul goes about planting churches and the grace of God is advancing, what in the world does it look like? Let me just tell you this for a second and then we're going to answer four questions about church planting. Paul never intended to go to the West. These are the Philippi of Thessalonica, the first two churches planted in the West. He had his eyes set on more churches in the Galatian region, but the Holy Spirit kept stopping him. And finally, he had a vision at night, and there's this man in Macedonia, Greece, saying, come and help us. So Paul goes. And he starts his ministry in Philippi and is severely mistreated, thrown in prison, finally released. And he comes down the coast to Thessalonica. And he plants the church there. So let's ask this question. These four questions. Number one, why does Paul plant churches? You can answer that question from at least two perspectives. First of all, from God's perspective, Paul is planting churches because God is calling a people to himself for his son. The reason John read from Psalm 2 earlier is Psalm 2 verse 8 says, the father speaking to his son, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Earth history basically is God the father rescuing a people from Adam's ruined race for his son. God is giving his son a bride made up of every nation, every tribe and tongue. And we're part of that. We belong. Your salvation is actually much more about God delighting in giving Jesus you than it is about you. It's just awesome. So from God's perspective... Church planting is bringing that to pass. And God initiated this program on earth with his people Israel, but the prophets of the Old Testament foresaw a time when the Gentiles would be brought in. All the nations belong to the Son. Why? Because Jesus Christ is worthy of the praise and adoration of all people. Everything belongs to him. We belong to him. What is Christ's strategy for bringing this to pass? He gave it to his disciples at the end of Matthew 28. It's called the Great Commission. Jesus went up, spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The world is the theater of God's saving grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're really not just doing evangelism to that end, we're making disciples. And disciples, by definition, belong to a body of people in a locale called the church. That's the place God intends when his grace is advancing on the earth, he is calling sinners into a body that ultimately belonged to his son. So why is Paul planning churches? Number two, from Paul's point of view, he's simply doing the thing God called him to do. We see Paul's uh, recounting of his own testimony before some different rulers in the book of Acts, and one of them in Acts 26, Paul is recounting how Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and he gave him his marching orders, Acts 26:15. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things that you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that you may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Paul's planting churches because Jesus told him to. Are you fulfilling God's unique call on your life? I don't think any of us are called to be an apostle like Paul. We are entrusted with the gospel so that wherever we live and and move and work, we have the privilege of making relationships to share the gospel. But do you know... There is something absolutely unique and personal to you that God wants you to do in your life. Do you know what it is? You need to be finding that out. Young people, we're kind of envious. The older we get, let me get the attention of my young folks. There's something God has called you to do. Study hard, work hard, play hard, listen to mom and dad. There's something so exciting for your life. And talk to older Christians around you and find out the thrill it is being in God's will, knowing that's what he made me for. So, beloved, I want to challenge you. Just don't bebop through life. If you haven't ever stopped and said, Lord, what is it I am on this earth for? To particularly be a part of Jesus advancing grace in culture. You need to ask him that question. Second question, what is a church plant? We know why Paul plants churches from a divine and a human point of view. Secondly, what is a church plant? We can answer that question from two points of view. From a divine point of view, church plants are places grace has drawn sinners. When I was leading a church planting movement in Lynchburg, Virginia, and our vision for multiplying churches and starting RUF, we, we decided to call them glory centers. Because a church is a place preeminently where the glory of God has been manifested. God saved sinners. To him be the glory. And those places are preeminently, are, 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 churches are preeminently places 
where God is to be glorified, worshipped, esteemed above all else. Wallace Church, you're a glory center. You exist for the glory of God, by the glory of God. <laughs> There's a sense in which we should, we should have a big banner across the back of the wall that says, only God could do this. Really? We exist for and by the glory of God. Now you know the mark of a true church. Everything we do is for the glory of God. Nursery, home groups, communion, preaching, singing, discipling our children. It's all for the glory of God. From a human point of view, what is a church plant? It's a strategic place that becomes a beachhead for various ministries. When grace advances into human lives and spiritual gifts are unearthed and God gives people a passion to live, to bless others, ministries break forth. I don't have time to catalog the plethora of ministries Wallace has been involved in over the years and is currently involved in, not least the pregnancy centers. Bless God! Wallace is a place of healing for the nations. This should be a church where it's safe to say, I am desperately broken by the fall. I am. There's wretchedness and filth in my heart. It's true of me. This should be a place where if you are a skeptic, you can bring your questions. This can be a place if you've walked with Jesus for 50 years, you can say, I struggle with fear and doubt. Beloved, this is a place to be human in a fallen world. <laughs> it's okay to say, I am struggling with sin and often sin gets the better of me. And it's really out of that context of brokenness that we find ourselves being equipped for ministry. The broken, helping others who are broken be served by the advancing grace of Jesus. So now you know the mark of a true church. It, it is people who are painfully and brutally transparent about what they really are, and that isn't immobilizing them. Instead, it is, it is because of the grace of Jesus advancing into them and through them, it is moving them to have a significant ministry in some way. If you're a member of Wallace, you have a ministry in some way. You're being equipped in some way. Third question. Where does Paul plant churches? Well, if Matthew 28, the Great Commission, is sort of the, the overarching strategy Jesus is using to call the nations to be his own bride then Acts 1.8 is a little bit more specific and narrow in that strategy. It's there where Jesus told his apostles just before he ascended back to heaven to take his royal seat on the throne of heaven. He said this to his apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Most students of Acts see in that one sentence a strategy for how the gospel is going to go forth in consecutive concentric circles. Jerusalem, the epicenter of the church at this point. 
Judea, the surrounding region, Samaria, a little farther out, and you've could have, you could have named some other regions, but basically the church is going to go out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Those are the marching orders. Paul gets that. The Christians in Jerusalem got that. They were scattered because of uh, persecution to take the gospel to all these different regions. Paul himself is a part of this movement of grace, and he has a specific calling in his life to the Gentiles. Peter, Jews, stay in Jerusalem, don't go on these long missionary journeys. Here's what Paul is told in Galatians 2. On the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised Jews, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. So you're Paul. You have this calling to the Gentiles. What are the logical places for you to go plant churches? The population centers. The place where the people are. Cities, people, resources. So notice in verse 1 of our text. In Acts 16, Paul has been in Philippi. He's persecuted. He's released from jail. He makes his way down to Thessalonica. It says he passed through Amphibolus and Apollonia. Why? They're smaller towns with no synagogues. He passes through them to Thessalonica. You may never have heard of this city, but in ancient times it was a major city in this area. 200,000 people. It was on the major trade route between east and west. And in a sense it becomes a test case for Paul. How is the word of God going to be received for the very first time after Philippi? For the very first time, how will the word of God be received at its moving from the west? These are the first two churches planted in the west, and I guess we are in a string of, what, thousands and tens of thousands of churches planted ever since. And it's ironic that it was in this region, in Macedonia, Alexander the Great wept because he realized he had finished conquering worlds. There were no more worlds to conquer. He had a vision to, to spread Greek culture as far as he could. And the, the, the story is, in Macedonia, he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has ever since been conquering the world with his advancing grace doing what Greek culture never, ever could do, breaking down the barriers between human beings of racism and snobbery, rescuing human people, human beings from greed, from selfishness and slavery to sin and death. Oh my, thank God for King Jesus, infinitely greater than Alexander the Great and Jesus' kingdom. Turns out wherever Jesus sends Paul, there's danger. Wherever he sends him. How'd you like this? You're signing up for a new job. By the way, every place you're going, you're going to get that stuffing beat out of you. This is part of your job description. Ananias, right before Paul's conversion, said this in Acts 9. Paul, uh, God told Ananias, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Right from the beginning, Paul knew he, knew he would suffer in this calling. If you have any doubt what he went through, read 2 Corinthians 12. 
Stunning what he went through. I mean, his body pummeled more times than you can imagine. Stoned, whipped, beaten with rods in Philippi. Awful, awful, awful. So how does he endure this? I mean, that's the kind of question I want to know. How does a man like this endure this? One way to answer it is to look at what he had told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He said this, And now, behold, bound by the Holy Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. How many of us want a word from the Holy Spirit that says, when you go to work today, bonds and affliction await you? Here's the key. It's verse 24, beloved. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself that I may finish my course. What was the secret to Paul being an agent and a vessel of advancing grace into very dangerous places? What was the secret? I don't belong to myself. I belong to Jesus. I don't have to be self-protective. I don't have to be self-promoting. I don't have to be all about self. I belong to Jesus. What does your life look like since you don't belong to yourself anymore? What's the difference in the way you talk and spend money and use your time and work and treat your children and treat your brothers and sisters? What's the difference now that you belong to Christ and not to yourself? What difference is it making? I encourage you to think about that. So when the gospel goes out, what sort of responses? The text indicates, number one, there are converts. Look at verse 4. Some of them were persuaded. That was a few, a number of the Jews in the synagogue. They joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Isn't that great? The second church planted in the whole West had lots of leading women in it to start. It's beautiful. So when Paul goes somewhere, he preaches the gospel, there are converts. Secondly, there are usually people who say, hmm, not so sure about all this. I'm not sure I want to commit myself to somebody else. We would understand that. First time you're hearing the gospel, you want to give everything over to Jesus? Maybe you need to do a little bit more research. Okay. Thirdly, there's hostility. And that is uh, unapologetically described here in the text. Verse 5, but the Jews, becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jacob. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. But when they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason, some of the brethren, before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. You know what they're saying? Jesus Christ's advancing grace has made such a difference in this region at this point that bystanders are saying, the world's being turned upside down. Your neighborhood, my neighborhood, our workplace, is it being turned upside down because of the love of Jesus? And the Jews said, they said, um, these men act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another King Jesus. I don't understand how these Jewish people could deny the kingship of God at this moment. Yes, self-preservation. It meant maybe severe treatment if they said there's no other king but Caesar. I guess I'd have to struggle with that in that kind of persecuting moment myself. This is what they said when they crucified Jesus. We have no king but Caesar. 
I can only just fear that my heart would not do that if my neck was on the line. You know, for two centuries, Christians faced literally a sword. And Roman soldiers would say, Curios Caesar, Curios Christos. Do you name Caesar as Lord or Jesus as Lord? Thousands lost their heads for saying, Curios Christos, Jesus is Lord. Even today, we know, in many parts of this world, people are being persecuted because there is one King, Jesus. Last question, church planting. How does Paul plant churches? Verse 2 tells us his method. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The uh, key to Paul's missionary strategy is find common ground. Now you wonder, wait a minute, why are there synagogues all over the Mediterranean basin at this point in history? Because of something over the last 200 years prior called the diaspora. God in his providence had Jews dispersed from their homeland in Palestine virtually all around the Mediterranean basin. God also providentially had the Romans build a lot of roads we're going, there are no roads. So, so by the time Paul is taking the gospel, there are virtually synagogues everywhere he wants to go and Roman roads to get him there. And so when he goes into a place, his first priority is for the Jews. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He first goes to the Jews. Why? Common ground. Same worldview, shared commitment to the scriptures, same belief in God. And so you can imagine, listen, literally, Paul comes down a road into Thessalonica. He goes to the 7-Eleven and says, where's the synagogue? No, really. He at some point said to somebody, where's the local synagogue? And they said, over there. And he went there. And for three Sabbaths, they said, what do you have to say, Rabbi? And he opened the scriptures and he taught them from the scriptures. He found common ground. What does that mean for you and me and our relationships with people in this area who probably have very little interest in Christianity, maybe have a, no biblical worldview whatsoever. We live among them, we work among them, people we would just maybe very secularized, very, very distant from the things of... What does it mean to contextualize ministry with those people? Do you have a strategy? One thing we can do is hospitality. Invite them into our homes and listen to their stories and love them and care for them and ask them questions. And the more you get to know someone, you might find a place God is beginning to nudge them. A place where life is difficult where they're weak, where they're vulnerable, where they're stressed, they're strained, and that might be a place to beach your boat on their little island to begin to make sense of Jesus Christ and his claims with them. Be praying for opportunities to do as much. That's Paul's means. He goes to the synagogue, he finds common grounds. Excuse me, that's the method. And finally, what's his means? It's verse 3. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, excuse me, had to suffer 
rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So it looks something like this. They gave him some scrolls, or he asked for the scrolls from Isaiah or whatever, and he began teaching them from their own scriptures about what was expected of Messiah. The Messiah is going to suffer. The Messiah is going to die. The Messiah is going to raise from the dead. And beloved, 20 years ago in Jerusalem, just 20 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ, he fulfilled every one of these things. Our book said this was going to happen. It did in our lifetime, 20 years ago in Jerusalem. And actually, Paul was just stealing a page out of Jesus' playbook. When Jesus was being interrogated and arrested, he said in Matthew 26, 56, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? Jesus set the precedent for grounding all of his ministry in the scriptures. And this is what Paul does. He just does Bible studies with them because the truths of Christianity are taught. They must be explained. They must be exegeted. He reasoned with them. He he used logic, history, and exegesis because Paul's ultimate confidence was in the power of the word of God, grace advancing through the word of God to break down the strongholds of unbelief in people's hearts and bring them to faith. Paul said, Romans said, faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So according to these verses, what's Paul's main subject? Jesus. And what was the content of the subject? His suffering and his glory. He preached the death of Jesus and he preached the resurrection of Jesus. Neither makes any sense without the other. And isn't it wonderful that we have good news from heaven to proclaim? Paul was basically had a passion to free people from the horrendous burden of proving their worth. So many people labor under the false assumption that they must make themselves acceptable to God. He had something that broke through the agony, the tyranny, the slavery of that belief. And it's called the good news of Jesus. That everything you need to be right with God, everything you need to be human, everything you need to live forever, everything you need to be cleansed, to be accepted, to be reconciled with God, everything is in Jesus. He's the Lord of life. He's your justification. He's your cleansing. He's your hope. He's your confidence. He's your righteousness. He's your resurrection. He's your forgiveness. It's all in Jesus. It's outside of you. All you need to do is believe it. Trust it. Receive Jesus. And the moment you do, God the Father will treat you forever the way he is treating his son right now. Isn't that good news? You can't do it. You know you can't do it. Christ has done it for us. That's the grace in word and message, Jesus advancing. So we're ready now see specifically in the epistle in the next 12 weeks together how that played itself out in the church. Does this look like a church that's going to thrive? We'll come next week and find out. Let's pray. Lord, we are in awe that you have chosen to advance your grace into our hearts. We know that it has because Jesus Christ has been the object of our heart's trust 
and affection. We have been drawn to his suffering. We see in his death the forgiveness of our sins, the justification of our unrighteous lives. We see in his resurrection our hope, our future, the certainty that we are accepted because your son is forever accepted with you. Thank you for good news. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the unfailing mercy of this Jesus. Thank you for the conquering nature of his kingdom. You've come to conquer our pride, our unbelief, our selfishness, the deadness of our hearts. Thank you that grace has advanced even to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.